0: I'm going to give you Larry C. <laughs> thank you, Jay. Hi, everybody. My name is Larry D And I'm an alcoholic. And before I forget, I want to thank the committee for the hospitality that we've been shown since we've been here uh, and for all the work that it, that it takes uh, to keep one of these going. Uh, Paul and I are on a are on a committee that uh, we have a couple retreats a year and I know the work that's involved and there's a lot of hard work going on behind the scenes and if it seems like nothing's happening that means that they're really working hard. Uh, So I appreciate that and and thanks for this opportunity. I am an alcoholic. Uh, My sobriety date is February 16th, 1987. By the grace of God, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, the program as it's outlined in the big book, the first 164 pages, sponsorship, home group, I have not taken a drink since then. And to me that is a miracle. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I am enriched and I am blessed and I am grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, for the people that came before me that held these meetings so that somebody like myself, a, a fallen down drunk, could come in here and find a new way of life. And I don't ever want to forget that there were some things going on while I was drinking that helped get me here. I love the program of Al-Anon. I am not a member of Al-Anon. My wife is a member of Al-Anon in good standing. She is an active member of Al-Anon. If it hadn't been for those people and those meetings that took her into their rooms and they opened up their arms and their hearts to her and loved her and cared for her and understood her at a time when I couldn't I'd have never got sober I don't think so I'm grateful for Al-Anon I didn't always feel that way about (laughs) Al-Anon in fact I hated Al-Anon And Paula gets on me all the time. She says, hate's an awful strong word. Well, I had an awful strong hate for Al-Anon. Hated Alcoholics Anonymous. (coughs) Hated being sober. Hated the thought of never being able to take a drink again. And she would come home from those Al-Anon meetings, and I could see something in her eyes. There was something going on. Well, when you're out there practicing and, and you're drinking and, and your head's full of, of self and selfishness and self-centeredness and, and fear, my thought was she's seeing somebody and they're meeting at these Al-Anon meetings. And it took me a long time to get up the courage to tell her that I used to follow her sometimes to the Al-Anon meetings to see her go in and see her come out and then I'd run down to the bar and drink. But she got elected treasurer. Now, I'm not proud of this. I've made amends... But she was elected treasurer of her Al-Anon group while I was still out there drinking. And I noticed she started bringing home this little blue bank bag. And I looked in it one night, and there was all this cash. And I thought, well, I bet that's from Al-Anon groups. And if I take that and go get drunk on it, I'll get even with them. (laughs) And that's what I did. And she got to catching on to this. And as fast as she could put it in, I was taking it out. And I'd watch her when she'd come in the door, and she'd try to slide it down in between the cushions of the couch and the arm of the couch. And I'd wait till she ran in the bathroom, and, and I'd run over there, and I'd unzip it and grab a handful, and I'd take off. And I'd get downtown, and I'd just laugh. I was getting even with them. Uh, I was a thief. Uh, like I said, I've made amends. Now, I haven't went down there and told that group that I took that money. I am not crazy. <laughs> I've seen Al, an, Al, some, an Al-Anon person when they get mad they go nuts too they lose all serenity and they get physical Uh, even when they're drinking you know i I used to lose it a lot when i was drinking but when she was drinking she lost it a lot too and and you're going to hear about that tomorrow and i don't want any sympathy from anybody let's get that straight now but she liked to kill me Uh, her sponsor is a member of that group and, and i went to her sponsor and i told paula that i had taken the money and, and, I, and I replaced it. And I couldn't keep track of how much I took. And I don't know if I put in there any less than I took, but I know that hopefully I put in there more than I took. And that was my amends to that Al-Anon group. And I, like I said, I love Al-Anon. Uh, I grew up in a home where there was a lot of drinking, a lot of violence, and a lot of abuse. And I'm not saying that's why I'm an alcoholic. So don't get me wrong there. I'm an alcoholic because I drank. I think you have to drink to be an alcoholic. Uh, had somebody come to one of our meetings there a while back that had never taken a drink, that they said they was an alcoholic, and I can't figure that out. You know, I didn't want to be here, and I had to come here. Why are they coming? You know, and they they haven't even drank. I can't, I can't figure that out. But anyhow, I I grew up in this home, and I carried resentments about what was going on my whole life. Uh, the biggest resentment I had is my parents, they were binge drinkers. And by the way, my father is sober. March 12th, he'll have 10 years of sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's probably the most important 12-step call I ever made. Was taking my father to treatment and then seeing that he goes to meet, seeing that he's got in contact with people in AA and, and get into some meetings. My mother is not as fortunate. She's still drinking today. Uh, but I had this, this resentment. They were binge drinkers, and they would go a year, a year and a half without drinking, and then they would break over. And when they broke over, sometimes they would be going a day, sometimes a week, sometimes a month. And I asked my mother once, I said, uh, I said, Mom, why is it that you was never able to come home and take care of us? Because we were young. I have, I have two brothers. And she said, Larry... She said, we would be in a hotel and I would wake up in the morning and I would think, God, get me home today. Get me home so I can be a good mother. Get me home so I can take care of my boys. She said, and then I'd reach over and I'd take a drink. And she said, and then I'd take another one. And then it would be the next morning and I'd be saying, God, get me home today. Let me take care of my boys. Let me be a good wife and a good mother. And I understood. And that resentment went away. I didn't have to ask God to remove that resentment. It went away because I understood. How many times did I come to or come out of a blackout and say, God, get me home. God, help me. I don't want to be this type of person. Help me be a good husband. Help me be a good worker. And I would take a drink. And then I'd take another drink. And I'd be right back in it. And the next day, I would be making these promises and, and these vows, and I could never keep them. I didn't know I could not drink. Uh, everything told me you probably shouldn't touch alcohol, Larry. Look what it's, we live beside a bar, and I seen the fights, I seen the knockdown dragouts in the bar, I seen them in the house. Uh, you wake up in the morning, and, and there's 15 people in your house, and you don't know what's going on, and they're playing country and western music, and they're yee hauling and screaming. And you're late for school the next day and you've got to go to school and, and you, your teacher says, why are you late again? And you don't tell them. You simply don't tell them. And you just take the punishment. And that, that fear, it, it builds. And, and that uneasiness. And that, that feeling of, of being separate from everybody else. But when I took my first drink, something happened. My best friend, stole something. I don't know what it was. It went down red and came up red. But we were supposed to play basketball that day and he said look what I got and he said take a drink and I took a drink and then he took one and then I took one and I could identify with what the doctor's opinion says. That ease and comfort. I drank for that effect. I didn't care. I remember I got sick, I puked, I blacked out but when I went home I didn't care. I didn't care that mom and dad was downtown drinking. I didn't care. That was my solution. And the next Monday at school, I, I wrote a note to Kenny, and I said, Kenny, when can we drink again? I would found the answer. And every chance we got, every opportunity we got, we was drinking. And we was, I was talking to somebody in the dinner line about the weather the way it is now. I drank, and it didn't bother me a bit standing up there in line. I drank in weather like this. This was great. This was the time that the real hardcore drinkers was out there. you know, the the bums and and the winos and the guys that really needed a drink, and all you'd have to do is give them enough money to get them something, and they'd be more than happy to buy you something. And I thrived on it. I heard a fellow, the very first conference I ever went to, I I heard a fellow say that uh, we lie about our drinking, and I could identify with what he said. He said, we're the types that When I was younger, I would drink a six-pack, split a six-pack with Kenny, and we'd go to the school dance. And I'd get up there and I'd act like I was drunk, and everybody'd say, "My God, how much did you have to drink?" And I'd say, "A twelve-pack, a case." Kenny and I split a case. And then, you know, later on in life, I'd I'd drink a twelve-pack or a case, and I'd go home, and Paul'd say, "How much did you have to drink?" "I split a six-pack with three guys." Yeah, we lie about it, and that's the way I was my whole life. <clears throat> going through high school, I was the type of alcoholic that I, I hid bottles under the school. I had it in my locker. I, ha- I didn't even remember that I'd kept booze in my locker until my brother told me about a year ago that he was talking to a lady and she asked him about me and he told her that I was sober and that I had a good job and a good wife and she said, my God, I thought he'd be dead. And she started telling him about all this, all these times that she had the locker beside me and how I would Pull a fifth out or or pull a quarter bear out and chug it before class and I'd forgot all about that. So it's still there. Uh, But my uh, high school principal called me in in my senior year and uh, he was talking on the phone to somebody and he said well he said maybe we can do this and and we'll just see what happens and he hung up and he said Larry do you know who I was talking to and I said no. He said do you know who I was talking about and I said no but somebody's in trouble aren't they and he said yeah. He said Larry I was talking to your mother and she's concerned about you, and I'm concerned about you. You're coming to school drunk, you're disrupting the classes, and you're not learning anything. He said, uh, at first I was just gonna turn you loose and not let you graduate, he said, but your mother and I had a long talk, and I'm gonna put you in suspension hall for the last two months of the year, and if you get, you just show up, don't bring any books, don't talk to anybody, just come in and sit down and put your head down, and we'll let you graduate. And that's how I graduated. Uh, somebody said Larry Cassidy, he was outstanding, outstanding in the hall. And that, that's the way it was, you know, I was. I was one of these troublemakers. And I couldn't whip anybody, you know, but I, I always fought. But I, I don't think I've ever won to fight, even against her. She broke my nose. And I was innocent at the time that she broke my nose. And uh, I was hoping Joe Newport would be here tonight because when Paula led down in Bluestone a few years ago and she talked about breaking my nose, We was walking back to the cabin, and I told Joe, I said, I was innocent that time. And Joe started yelling, did you hear him? He said, that time, that time. How many times was there? And I said, God, shut up, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Scared to death. But uh, I graduated high school, and I turned 18, and I walked over to my parents, and I told them, I said, I'm moving out of here. I can't live by your rules. You're too strict. I'm going to go out and I'm going to make a name for myself. And I threw all my clothes into a garbage bag, one of them big hefty bags, and I was out to conquer the world. And I went to my best friend's house, Kenny. The guy who told me, we, we made a vow, if one of us ever need the other, we will be there. And I went to his house and knocked on the door and I said, Kenny, I need a place to stay. Mom and Dad threw me out. He said, door's open, Larry. But he was married at the time. And his wife was pregnant. And after about two weeks, he came up to me and he said, Larry, he said, I, hate, I hate to tell you this, buddy, He said, but uh, you're going to have to move on. He said, you're scaring the wife when you come home. You're, you're uh, passing out with cigarettes lit. You throw stuff in the oven and, and you leave it burning. And, and you, you know, you, you're causing us arguments and you come in crying. We don't know what you're crying about. And you come in happy and we don't know what you're happy about. And, you know, clothes are coming up missing. And Kenny and I wore the same size clothes. And he said, so I'm going to have to ask you to move on no problem Kenny I can handle that so I went and I found another guy that I'd went to school with and I said you know what Kenny did he threw me out for no reason at all he didn't even give me a time to get a job to start paying my way he just threw me out and he became one of those people and that guy said well Larry he said I understand he said come on and move in with me and I stayed with this guy and his parents for a few days probably wasn't a couple weeks and he said, Larry, he said, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to have to move on. Same story over and over and over. You know, I was burning these bridges behind me. And I ended up one day, I was uh, on the riverbank down in Marietta Ohio. and I used to tell people I lived on the riverbank to get some sympathy, but they quit working when they found out the truth. I only spent one night on the riverbank. But this couple came down, and uh, they was going to go swimming, and she said, name was Ruth, and Ruth said, Larry, if there was anything you could have, what would it be? And I told her this big meal. I was starving. And she said, well, stay down here with Clarence for a while, and uh, we'll see what happens. And she came back about two hours later and said, Larry, come on up to the trailer with Clarence. And I said, okay. And went up there and slid that sliding glass door open, and there was everything on the table that I would told her I wanted to eat. Everything. Double of everything. She was a big person, and Clarence was a, they intimidated me a little bit, but they were overly nice. And it took them almost two years to get rid of me. <laughs> they took in any stray that there was. Cat, dog, man, woman. It did, they were overly nice. They almost killed me. And I've made my amends to Ruth since then. And Ruth said, you know, she said, Larry, she said, I knew. I knew there was something wrong with you, but I just couldn't put my hand on it. Uh, but there came a time. <laughs> When uh, Ruth came up and said that, and see, Ruth and I had this, I don't know what it was between us, but I could make Ruth cry, you know, when I started telling her how tough things really were. But when Clarence came up and told you that there was something you needed, you better do it. And we had this agreement that there was like, oh, I don't know, three other couples living there with them, and kids, you know, and we'd all put the food stamps together at the first of the month and run over to Kroger's and get Spam and, you know, just you know, live high off the hog for the first week of the month and then, you know, drink up the rest. And, and the deal was, whoever had the job got the extra bedroom. I went out and I got a job washing cars, but I could never make it to the bedroom. I was always passed out on the porch, passed out in the kitchen, and passed out in the front room or, or uh, you know, fighting with them or arguing with them. And, and the time came when Clarence said, Larry, you're going to have to move on. And, and I, I packed my clothes again. But in between this time, I was having a party down there at the trailer. And my best friend, Kenny, I called him up and said, come on over. I'm having a party. And he said, well, who all will all be invited? And I said, you and your wife. And uh, I said, we'll just sit around and drink. And I, I've got my girlfriend that's coming over tonight. And he said, fine, no problem. And uh, they got there, and his wife said, uh, I hope you don't mind, but I've invited my sister to come over tonight. She had plans that were changed, and uh, she was talking about Paula. And Paula come up and knocked on the door and come in and I looked at Paula and I looked at the girl that I was with the girl that I was engaged to. I don't know, is it an engagement when you don't give them a ring? I told her I was engaged to her anyway. But I looked at her and I looked at Paula and I thought, man, I have made a big mistake. I want her. I seen the car she pulled up in. The girl I was dating didn't have a car. I had a car, but they was going to take it the next you know the next week if I didn't make a payment by that Thursday. And she had these mag wheels and it's duster. It was a nice-looking car. And my ear caught her and Vicki talking. And I heard her telling Vicki that she was able to put a little more money in the bank than what she did the week before. I thought, man, if I can just get with her. So I run into the bathroom. And, you know, when you got all those people living there like that, you got clothes just thrown everywhere. And I just started picking out the dirtiest, cleanest clothes. I, I really wanted to impress her. My hair was clear down past my shoulders. I was missing a tooth in front here that some guy had knocked out. But I really wanted to impress her. So I started a big fight with the girl that I was seeing, and, and she got mad and, and went home, and, and then I started making my move. Uh, to make a long story short, Paula ended up, you know, we went to another party. Mine was a dud, and I didn't have a car to go home because my girlfriend had taken it, and so Paula said, yeah, I'll give this guy a ride, and uh, I had her all over town. I couldn't see. When I drank, I, I would lose I would just lose all consciousness about where I'd been, who I was with, what was going on, and I couldn't remember where I was staying, even though I was staying there I couldn't remember. And I had her out to my mom and dads and some friends and finally she got fed up with it and she said, Look, she said, I'm gonna drop you off here at your aunt's house. I don't have time, I gotta get up and go to work tomorrow. I know I like that word work coming from her. She said, I gotta get up and go to work tomorrow. I said, Well I do too. I said, You know, I said, I ain't I'm gonna marry you. And she said, you are crazy. The same thing her mother said, you are crazy. You will not marry my daughter. But she said, you're crazy. I'm not going to marry you. I said, I love you. And she said, uh, I got to get out of here. I got to go home. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, if you love me, now this qualifies her for al <laughs> I said, if you love me, you'll pick me up where I work tomorrow. And I told her where I work. Told her I got off at 5. She was there at 4.30. 4.30. I had all the guys I was working with go out and look at her. She was my trophy. I said, look at that good looking girl out there. I said, her and I was going to get married. Well, how long have you been seeing her? I said, I just met her last night at a party. <laughs> they thought I was crazy. But I convinced her. After, after so long of, of uh, dating her and, and talking to her, I convinced her and I wrote it down on paper and it looked good on paper. You know, her job and my job and her money in the bank and my willingness to put money in the bank. (laughs) And if we could combine all this, we could buy that house. And I'll quit drinking and we'll live happily ever after. See, when I would date her, I would try not to let her see me drink too much. But when I took her home or she went home, that's when it was Katie bar the door. You know, she'd say, what happened to you? You know, how's come your nose is busted again? When you left me, dropped me off, you said you was going home. And I said, well, I went downtown and had a few drinks afterwards. But anyhow, I convinced her to marry me, and I went over, and I waited till her father was out of town. Her father was a construction worker, and I was scared of him. He had, you know, he was a pretty good-sized guy. And I waited till he went out of town. I went and told her mother we was going to get married, and she said, absolutely not, absolutely not. Her mother could see right through me. Mothers have that instinct, I think. But anyhow, I'd already had Paula convinced and uh, a little bit of rebellion in her system, and and we ended up getting married. And I told her mother that I loved her and that I'd take care of her and she'd never have to worry about it. And we wasn't married 24 hours, and now I was knocking on her mother's door, bumming money. See, Paula had had some money set aside, but the night we got married, I wanted to celebrate. I always thought that there was something happening on the wedding night. I didn't know until about a year and a half ago when she was giving her lead that nothing happened. Uh, I got drunk. Uh, but the next day I told her that I was going to quit drinking and, and we would work this out. And we lived in a half of a trailer. We didn't live in a whole trailer. We lived in a trailer that a guy had put a wall in the middle of it and he was renting out both sides. And we lived in a half of a trailer. And a couple of weeks after we was married, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take it anymore and I went downtown to have a few drinks and I ended up at a party and this fellow was telling me about uh, you know being married and asking me all kinds of questions and I was the center of attention and yeah I just married well where's your wife she's at home you know know how the rules are a man runs that house she's at home where she belongs and he said well who'd you marry and I said well Paula Brown from Williamstown he said well I know Paula he said I went to school with her nice girl now I don't know if any of you are like I am but what people say and what I hear is usually two different things <laughs> this guy left and I'm sitting there and I'm drinking and I'm thinking they're having an affair <laughs> and the longer I drank the longer the affair was <laughs> and I thought I bet he went out home to see her so I get in the car and I go running out to the trailer and she's in bed And I bust through the door and the bedroom door and accuse her of every dirty, rotten thing that you would think to call somebody that would be in a situation like that. And I flipped the bed over on top of her. And the next day she told me what happened and I said, no way, Paula. I said, I wouldn't do that to you. I care about you. And then a couple weeks later she'd walk by and there'd be a big bruise on her leg. And I'd say, what's the matter with your leg? And she said, well, don't you remember? No, what happened? You come home last night, Larry knocked me around again. And I said, Paul, I, won't, I wouldn't do that. I love you. You're crazy. You're making this up. And then a couple weeks later, she'd come home from work, and there'd be a bruise on her arm. And I'd say, what, did you uh, stumble or something today at work? And she'd say, my God, don't you know what you're doing? And I didn't believe her. But every time this happened, I would say, God, help me to not drink. God, keep me from doing that to my wife. And I'm not proud of that. I've made amends to her for that. That amends will never be completed. What I try to do with my amends to Paula is I try to love her more, a little more today than I did yesterday. And, that, and I believe that uh, for some reason that God put her in my life to go down to on to help me see where I was headed. And that eases the pain. And every time I talk about it, it eases the pain. And the sh- But she stuck with me, and, and things was crazy, and she would start to drink with me, and she would want to go downtown, and I'd be sitting there in the bar, and, you know, I'd see her take a couple dollars and, of my money to buy her a drink, and I'd think, God, that's just that much I could be drinking. And she'd get up and go to the bathroom, and I'd give a guy a $5 bill, and I'd say, Here, buy me a couple drinks. Don't let her know you're doing it, because I didn't want her to, you know, to figure this out. And... She'd come out and the guy'd buy me a couple drinks and and then I'd buy him a couple drinks. He'd buy me a couple and uh, before you know it, Paula would be upset because I'd only supposed to have one or two and she'd be out of there and, and then I could drink the way that I wanted. I was a barroom drinker. I loved that atmosphere. I loved that that jukebox blaring over there in the corner playing those sad country songs. You know that that song. Uh, Lonely Women Make Better Lovers. Now, when somebody would play that, I would think, God, she's at home, she's alone. And I'd run back to the phone, and I'd call her, and she'd say, hello, and I'd hang up. I just wanted to make sure she was there. Or I'd run back, and I'd call her, and I'd say, Paula, come and get me. I'm not going to come and get you. And I'd say, my God, it's three degrees outside. Come and get me. Now we've talked about this. I'd say, please, no, you know. She'd say, I'm going to go, and she'd hang up, and then I'd carry on a real conversation, the conversation that a man would have. I don't want you to come down here and get me. I'm staying out all night. I don't care what you say. And I'd slam the phone down, and I'd go up to the bar, and them guys would say, boy, she's on your back all the time, isn't she? Yeah, she is. we Well, here, have a drink. And that, that, uh, that saying that uh, the women get better looking at, at closing time, hell, I thought I got better looking towards closing time. You know, I'd sit there, and and I'd go back to the bathroom, and I'd be leaning up against that urinal and and taking a leak, and I'd look over in the mirror, and I'd think, you've got to be the best-looking guy in this bar. (laughs) And if it wasn't for that ring on your finger, you could probably just go out there and get any woman that you wanted. And she ought to be lucky that you're even married to her and that you put up with everything that she deals you. And that was my thinking. I love the fact that, that there would be a fight over a quarter on the pool table and you know once you start hanging out at a bar that becomes your pool table that becomes your cash register and you just can't let anybody come in there and run you it's almost like a home group to you you just can't let anybody come in there and start making all these decisions and changes and and uh... you know that you know that you've been there too long when they start saying hey Larry would you watch the register while I run down the street to the bank and you think "Yeah, this is what I like I've earned that trust but I would never take money out of the register from the bar that I drank. I would take the drinks, but I wouldn't take the money. I uh, wrote an article to the grapevine once about the, the guy at the end of the bar. And this, this guy's name was Ed, and, and he sat at the end of the bar, and he was a wino, and he came in one day and he was shaking, and they, he asked him for a drink, and the guy said no, because uh, if I mark it down, you ain't going to be around tomorrow to pay for it. And sure enough, Ed died. And they they set one of them big pickle jars up behind the bar, and put on it flowers for Ed and I think they'd only got like three or four dollars worth of change and I thought my god that's how I'm going to end up there's there's going to be a jar back here and it's going to say flowers for Larry and the way I've treated people and the way I've lived my life nobody's going to put any money in it and I was sickened but I didn't stop drinking couldn't stop drinking Uh, I ended up back in 1982 I went into the place I would got a job working at a plant and I went in and told him I said I think I might have a drinking problem I don't know but if you put me on night shift I won't drink anymore and they said well what makes you think that and I said well because the bars are all open at night that I go to and I just won't be able to get to them and he said well Larry he said I think you might have a drinking problem I said no I said I'll tell you what it is my wife's spending too much money you know you get that extra fifty cents an hour to be on night shift and we'll save that and the money that I don't drink on, I'm gonna you know come out of this on top and the next thing you know they've called my brother into the office and I'm up in Columbus Talbot Hall treatment and I was there about four hours and, and I called Paula and I said get up here and get me out of here she said where are you at I said I'm down in the lobby I said I escaped <laughs> had my robe on and my Pittsburgh pirate hat And I was back in the corner on the phone telling her, and she said, Well, Larry, you know the car's broke down. I can't come and get you. And I said, You get up here and get me. And then here she comes, the nurse, the big nurse. I said, Ah, God, Paula, they caught me. She took me upstairs, and she said, What's the matter? And I said, I'm out of here. She said, Larry, there's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous here. Would you uh, talk to him? And I said, No. And he just happened to be standing there and he came over and he said, I'll tell you what, he said, you give me 15 minutes of your time and if you want to go home after we're done talking, he said, I'll take you home. I said, I have got 15 minutes. And he talked to me and I can't remember what he said. But I know that when he walked out that room, he walked out alone and I was crying. And I thought maybe I do have a problem, but I'm not sure. In group therapy the next day, they told me that uh, the members of the family of alcoholics are sick. And I ran to the phone and I called Paul and I said, Paul, you got a big problem. (laughs) She said, what? And I said, you're sick. I said, you need to go to this place called Al-Anon. Now, she didn't know what Al-Anon was, and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know. She didn't know if it was a treatment center, and I didn't know if it was a treatment center, but I knew she had to get, had to get there because she was sick. She called me a few names and hung up. She said, I'll, I'll go when you get out. And she was writing me these letters when I was up there in treatment. Larry, when you get out... Everything's going to be so good. I'm going to you. I'll make sure you don't drink again. I'll make sure you get to work on time. Right now, I'm, I'm sweeping the floor as I write this letter and the, ha- the trailer's clean, and, and we're going to live happy. And we thought that. We thought we're going to live happily ever after. Finally, I'm not drinking. Drinking was the problem, is what I thought. <laughs> I get home, we run down to Harts Family Center, we buy a deck of cards and we go over to the cable company and we order HBO. I don't need to go to meetings. You know, they told me to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I could never do that. But anyhow, we'd be sitting there and the the show that was supposed to be on HBO that night was canceled or or whatever and and we would start playing Rummy and I would be thinking, she's cheating. Why would she want to cheat? Or I'd be at work the next day and, and I would lose my temper and the boss would say, boy, your attitude sure hasn't changed. Why are they against me? You know, Why are they constantly against me? And if you're not going to Alcoholics Anonymous and you're not taking what the big book says to heart and applying it to your life, as far as I'm concerned, you're suffering from untreated, untreated alcoholism and you either go crazy, you end up in jail, you'll drink or you'll die. And that's where I was at. And I always chose to drink. And for five years, Paul and I lived like that. In and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, in and out of Al-Anon, we fought like cats and dogs. And I had sponsors. I would ask guys to be my... Hey, Bob, would you be my sponsor? Sure, Larry, I'd be glad to sponsor you. And then I'd avoid him like the plague. He'd give me his phone number and I'd toss it out the window on the way home from the meeting. You know, I had all the answers when I come into Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the things I heard in treatment, which is not true, so don't believe it, the equivalency to 28 days in treatment is two years in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I heard. And the very first meeting we ever went to, it came Paula's turn to talk. We went to an open meeting, and I said, wait a minute. I said, she don't know. I said, she's sick. I said, I just got out of a 28-day program. I said, I've got two years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think I started to help the lady out that had talked about the problem of letting go and letting God. Left there feeling feeling pretty smug but I couldn't live like that and I would continue to drink. I I couldn't make 90 meetings in 90 days. I heard watch out for three, six, nine. Why do we tell people that? I got drunk at three months, I got drunk at six months, and I got drunk at nine months. You know, uh, if it isn't any better, go out there and drink. People, it wasn't any better. I wasn't doing anything to make it any better. I wasn't working the steps. I didn't have a a good sponsor. I I didn't have what it takes to stay sober, and that's the desire. And I drank. And she sent me down one morning. She said, this is it. And she started letting me know that she was going to change her life. And she was going back to Al-Anon. And this time, she was going to try to apply the principles of the Al-Anon program to her life because she didn't know, she no longer had anything to lose. And I thought, well, that's all right. You know, she'll go to meetings. I'll drink. It not make any difference to me. And about this time, my father had got into Alcoholics Anonymous. And they were going to meetings together and they would come home and they would have that gleam in their eye and they would be smiling and laughing and joking and I would tell them, don't you dare come in this house laughing like that. Don't you dare put on that face just as soon as you walk across that threshold just to try to impress me because it's not going to work. And I'd tell them, okay, I'll go to a meeting with you and on the way out to pick up dad I would jump out of the car and run down the street and get drunk. And finally she quit even buying that. Uh, February fifteenth, 1987, I'm sitting down there at the bar that I usually drink at, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And the guy that I'm sitting next to me said, look around you, Larry. He said, this is it. This is our life. And there was only like three or four people in there. And I went down to another bar and somebody said, "Uh, Larry, I think it's about time your turn to buy, isn't it? And I said, sure. And as soon as I said, sure, the thought came, go ahead because it's the last one you're going to have to buy. And I thought, God help me. And I didn't go call my sponsor and I didn't go call the AA Answering Service. I called the person that i seen the change come about in her life. I called my wife. And I said, my God, Paula, I need help. And she didn't say, I'll take care of it. She didn't say, I'll be right there. She said, Larry, do you have an honest desire to stop drinking? You see, she had got with the sponsor that I had at the time and he gave her a copy of this book and told her to apply it to her life. And she got with members of Alcoholics Anonymous and they, they, would, they would talk to her about the steps and members of Al-Anon. And she wasn't buying it anymore. She said, if you have a desire to stop drinking, come home. So I got a cab and I went home and I walked in the door and I sat down in my chair and I was, bowing like a baby, and I said, Paula, do you want to know the man that you're married to? And she got down on her knees in front of me, and she grabbed me by the hands, and she said, Larry, I understand. And I knew, I knew just by the look in her eyes that she understood something about me that I've never been able to understand myself. Another half hour, we were packed, and uh, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous come over, and and they took me up to Columbus, and uh, this Little uh, counselor came up to me. She was only about that tall, just cute as a bug. Until she started talking. (laughs) She put her finger in my chest and was telling me that they got a that bed that they've got there could be used for somebody that really wants it. That she read the paperwork that I'd wrote up the night before, and they wouldn't put it up with me. That if I didn't promise her that I was going to get active with my sponsor and apply the 12 steps to my life and get a big book and study it to get out the door right now. Because she wasn't wasting her time. But she didn't know that I was serious this time. And when I got out, I called up my sponsor and I said, David, I said, what do I need to do? He said, read the first 164 pages of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and when you're done, call me. I said, well, heck, I can do that. Read them called him. All right, David, now what do I do? Read the first 164 pages of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous and call me. I said, okay. I did that. All right, Dave, now what? I'm ready. Read the first 164 pages of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous and call me. Well, I didn't call him. I just walked up to him one time after meeting. I said, I've read it. He said, good. Now go home and study the first 164 pages of the Big Books Alcoholics Anonymous and call me when you're done. He was serious about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was serious about sponsorship. He knew that he was taking somebody's life in his hands. And if I wasn't going to do what he suggested, then he wasn't going to have anything to do with me because he wasn't going to be responsible. He was going to pass on what they passed on to him. I know him, I know his sponsor, and I know his sponsor's sponsor. And they all carry the same message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in between these phone calls and this reading, David would pick me up and take me to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. He would walk in the door and show me how to sit down and shut up. Not, not ever one time did David say, sit down and shut up. I followed him to, he sit down and I sit down. When he got done after the meeting, he picked up his ashtray and took it in and threw it away, and I picked up mine and took it in and threw it away. I was just trying to be like David. And we had these talks in the truck. And he said, Larry, he said, what's the worst thing you've ever done? And I said, you ain't getting it out of me, David. I said, forget it. He said, well, let me tell you the worst thing I've ever done. And he told me. And as fast as I could, as polite as I could, I got the heck out of that truck. And I ran in and I told Paul, I said, he is crazy. He said, you wouldn't believe it. I said, I can't tell you, but you wouldn't believe it. And what David was trying to do was earn that trust. And he kept sharing these things with me. And I called him up one time and I said, David, you know, reading the book, I'm starting to identify myself in there, going to the meetings and listening. I said, I think I might be at step three, but I'm not sure. Thank God that David didn't say, well, if you're not sure, go back to step two. And then if you're not sure, go back to step one. This is not a go-back program. He said, come down and talk to me. And I went down to his house and he talked to me about his powerlessness over alcohol and his unmanageability. And then I started to be able to match my inconsistencies with his. And then he said, Larry, how do you pray? And I said, Dave, I pray for anything I get. He said, well, why don't you just try saying, Thy will be done, not mine. How best can I serve thee? And I said, that's too long. He said, all right. He said, Thy will be done. I said, that's too simple. He said, just give it a try. And he talked about his understanding of a spiritual awakening and and his understanding of, of God. Uh, and he said, Larry, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, Go home, tell Paula that you want to make the decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand Him. Ask her to get on her knees with you. You read it out on page 63 in the big book. You read it and then put it into words that you can understand and have her read it and put it into words that she can understand. And I said, No way. It's too embarrassing, David. He said, You told me you would do whatever it took. And I said, All right. So I went home and and I explained to Paula what it was all about as best I could. And I said, You probably wouldn't want to do that, would you? And she said, Yes. And we got on our knees together and I grabbed her hand. She grabbed mine and I read it and said it, and she read it and said it, and something happened. And there's a country and western song out called The Dance. And there's a brief line in that song that says, For a moment the world was right. And that's what happened to me at that third step. For a moment, the world was right. And I ran to the phone and I called David to tell him about it. And he said, don't enjoy it. He said, I understand. And I knew. The second time in my life, I knew somebody understood what I was going through. And about two years later, he said, why did you do that third step with Paul? And I said, David, you told me to. He said, well, he said, there's another reason. And I said, what is it? He said, no. He said, you'll tell me. And then a couple years after that, Paul and I are down at Myrtle Beach and we're at a conference, and there's a fellow up there talking, and he's talking about sponsorship, applying the 12 steps, and it sounded like he had David for a sponsor. I don't know if they go to a sponsor school or not, but it just sounded like they did. In fact, I asked him after he got done leading if he knew David, and he said, no, never been there, Marietta. But anyhow, he was talking about step three, and he said his sponsor told him to do it with another person. And, of course, he he fought it and didn't want to do it, but he went ahead and did it, and he said something happened. He said that it dawned on him that the good book says, where two of you are gathered in my name, I'll be there. And I started crying like a baby, and I couldn't stop. And that was the other reason why David had me do that with somebody else. Because not only was there a commitment from me to God, but there was a commitment from God to me. There was a commitment from God to me to Paula and it was just like a triangle. I'm here, I'm Paul is here, and God's up there. And I come running home, and I told David, and he just nodded his head. I said, yeah, you're getting it. You're getting it. But he got me into the fourth step. He said, no, I'm going to go out of town. He said, I'll be back in a week. And he sat down, and he showed me how to do the fourth step out of the big book because he had heard about some of my other four steps. People in AA are telling you. I tried doing it by the Holy Bible. I tried doing it by the al program or their, their little book that they have. I tried doing it by the Hazleton Guide. I tried other guides, 12 steps in 12 days, 12 steps, 12 different ways. I tried everything, <laughs> everything, but the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I couldn't figure out why I was getting drunk. I had a sponsor once, and I told Bob, I said, Bob, I think I'm ready to do the fifth step. And he said, have you done the fourth step? And I said, no. He said, well, go home and write out the four step. And I said, no problem. I went home and I wrote out, made out a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. I called him up and he said, boy, you have missed the boat. <laughs> Completely missed the boat. But see, when you're like me and you have all the answers, you can't learn anything. I, I wasn't teachable in, in the early early stages of uh, coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. But anyhow, David went out of town and I wrote and, and I come up with four lists of resentments and fears and the harms I've done others in my sex conduct. And it's all in there, and the directions are in there, and, and when he come back to town, he come up to the, the apartment, and we had a long talk. And before I realized that we was into the fifth step, I think we started out talking about playing golf. But before I realized that we was in it, and he was sharing things about his life, and I was sharing things. And when uh, he got done, he said, now, he said, I'll... When I leave, I want you to go over these first five steps, and if you've left anything out, give me a call, Larry. He said, if not, follow the directions. And he talked to me a little bit about step six and seven, and he left. And I read that step six, you know, where it says we were ready. And all these steps before step six prepared me for that. Was I willing to let God remove these things that had blocked me off? Yes, I was. I didn't want to live like that anymore. And then I got down on my knees, and I offered myself to God as I understood Him. I said, God, this is it, buddy. This is the best I can offer you. Would you take it? And David explained to me that if my character defect is fear, to practice faith. If my defect of character is dishonesty, to practice honesty. Practice whatever the opposite of your defect of, carrier, defect of character is, Larry. And then he got me into the eighth step. And he said, Now, he said, I want you to take that list of resentments and that list of others. And he said, I want you to write this down inventory style. Who have I harmed? Who have I hurt? What was the cause? What was the reason? How did it affect me? And that's the way I went through my eighth step. And he came up to me when it was time to do the ninth step and he said, Did you put Bob on that list? And I said, David, you know I don't like Bob. I said, I just told Paula the other night that I'm going to bust him at the meeting if I see him again. I hated Bob. See, Bob was one of these members of Alcoholics Anonymous that seemed like he was happy. And he'd come in once about in 82 or 83 and he was carrying this baby and Paul and I had just found out the week before that we couldn't have kids. And Bob walked up to me and he said, Larry, he said, when, when you live right, good things happen. And I thought, I'm trying to live right. Nothing good ever happens. And I ended up drinking. And I hated Bob from that day on. And David talked to me about that. And I went up and I seen Bob at the meeting the next week. And I said, Bob, I don't know what it is. I said, but I've had some awful ill feelings towards you, but I'm here to let you know that I'm going to try and change that on my part. And if I've ever said or done anything that might cause you harm, I'm sorry. But today I'm going to try and not be that way. And he gave me a hug and said, that's all right, I've never noticed it. And it wasn't too long after a meet- after that, I was in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I was scared to death and I was nervous. And I told him, I said, I think I'm at the point where I'm going to drink again. And there was probably 20 people at the meeting. We were sitting in a big circle And Bob was there, and it came Bob's turn to talk, him. he said, Larry, we will love you until you can learn to love yourself. And he's the only one I heard that night. And if I would have had that resentment, I would have never heard it. And then David told me to get into Step 10 and start practicing these first nine proposals in my life. And he talked to me about prayer and meditation, I said, David, I can't pray like a priest. He said, nobody's asking you to, Larry. He said, just keep it simple. He said, God is your friend. Just talk to Him like you're talking to a friend and try to be kind and considerate to the needs of others and I said alright I'll give that a try and that's the, way I, that's the way I got started and I got to the 12th step and I said alright are we done? he said no he said now when you go home tonight he said, I want you to get on your knees and ask God to put somebody in your life and you take them through these 12 steps and that was probably 1989, 1990 and that's what I've been doing ever since every time I get a new pigeon and we go through the steps and they tell me I can't do that third step with anybody. Nobody understands. I tell him if you're in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're with somebody that understands. If you want me to, I'll do it with you. And I just try to share the same information and the same experience that's been passed on to me. I don't know how close I am to running out. One night, David, it was Tuesday night, and David said, Larry, what are you doing tonight? And I said, nothing, Dave. You know, I want to stay home. He said, well, there's a district meeting down in Parkersburg. Let's go. And I said, Dave, I don't know anything about a district. And he said, well, come on, follow me down. And I went down there and I was really impressed on what goes on behind the scenes of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just kept following Dave around, going to district meetings, and then I'd see some other people going. And and uh, one day they said that they needed somebody to stand for uh, institutions chairperson. And I, David said, Well, Larry can do it. And I said, I've never been in jail, David. I said, For six hours, maybe. He said, You can do it. He said, All oh, you've got to do is form a committee and set up some jail meetings and stay active. And I, and I did that. And two years later they said uh, we need somebody to stand for CPC chairperson and I said well maybe I can do that I don't know and, and I did and they voted me in and I started going to assemblies and I was, I was blessed I was thrilled uh, and, and excited about Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, somebody couldn't fulfill their term as CPC chairperson and I stood and they voted me in and I cried like a baby and I couldn't believe it. And this last time I told Grace I said, Gracie. I said, I'm not going to stand for anything anymore. I said, I'm tired, and you know, maybe I've got some other things I need to do. And uh, they had the elections for the delegate, and, and Marty was voted in. And Grace came up to me, and she almost pinched me. She grabbed me by the arm, and she said, Larry, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So I stood for alternate delegate, and was voted in. And once again, I ran to the phone and cried like a baby to Paula. Your love amazes me. Your trust amazes me. You know, I just want to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing. I just want to do the best that I can to help the suffering alcoholic at any level, whether it's emptying ashtrays or going to a district meeting or in my own group conscience. As long as I can put that newcomer foremost in my mind, chances are I might make a right decision. I don't know. I was uh, coming back from, uh, Marty was giving her delegates report. Uh, We thought it was going to be in West Virginia. We don't know how we did it, but we ended up in Pennsylvania, and we was coming back, and she said, Larry, she said, uh, you get indigestion very easy and I said no why and she said well I'm going to send a letter out to all the committee members and I said so she said I'm going to resign and I said my god Marty you can't I said I can't go to New York I can't do this I can't do that and she said you're going to have to and she started explaining why why she had to resign and I could understand that and I got home and I called David and I started off oh, I can't do it David I don't have the strength to do it and he said do you need to go to New York right now? And I said, no. And he said, when you need to go, you'll get the strength. He said, just keep trying to do what's in front of you. And that's where I'm at. And you people gave that to me. You people gave me a loving relationship with my wife. And I am so glad and so grateful for that. I learned how to love her in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I, I, I asked an old timer once, I said, how do you, you talk all the time about living the 12 steps. How do you live the 12 steps? He said, Larry, it's real simple. He said, I do what I need to do. I do what's right in front of me. He said, if I go home and my wife's just got done fixing dinner and we've ate and she wants to sit down, he said, I go to do the dishes. He said, if the dishes need done, do them. If the rug needs swept, sweep it. He said, become responsible. You know, be considerate to the needs of others. And that's what I try to do. I want to close now. I want to, you know, my mother-in-law... She's the one that said absolutely not, and she's seen the abuse and the bruises and the pain and the drinking and, and the, the hell. And a couple years ago, she gave me a birthday card, and it says, Happy Birthday, Larry. Remember the old saying, You've come a long way, baby? I guess that was written for women, but could it would have to apply to you. I am proud of you, and I am sure that AA would be the major factor in your lifestyle today. I know that it has been a battle for you, and as far as I'm concerned, You've made it. Now see, she thinks I've made it. She does. And I'm not going to tell her any different. (laughs) But you know, and most importantly, I know that I have not made it. I don't have this thing made. This is a daily reprieve contingent on my spiritual maintenance. However I am spiritually today is going to affect my sobriety. But this is the part that got me. Thanks for all the good things, the good things you have done for my daughter. And once again, I cried like a baby. I'm a crier. But what you people have taught me and how I live today has a reflection on other people. And just try to remember that. You may be the only big book somebody sees. Thank you.